Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Peru has just sworn in a new president who campaigned on a hard-left platform. But it's hard to know just how he will govern or whether he'll even serve out his term. He wants to push for constitutional change. Peruvians just want stability and COVID relief. And think of a romance novel. I don't want to say trashy. Let's call it saucy. Who are the protagonists? Historically, they're overwhelmingly rich, dashing, and white. Our correspondent talks about a push for a bit of diversity in a monochrome genre. But first... Facebook's latest quarterly profits were twice as high as they were a year ago, putting the social media giant on track for permanent membership in the exclusive club of companies with a market value of over $1 trillion. This was a good quarter for our product and and business. Unsurprisingly, boss Mark Zuckerberg was pleased with the results yesterday. And I'm excited about our product roadmap ahead. In laying out that roadmap, Mr. Zuckerberg highlighted three key areas. Creators, commerce, and the next computing platform, they're they're each important priorities for us, and they're each going to unlock a lot of value on their own. Um, But together, these efforts are also part of a much larger goal um, to help build the metaverse. The metaverse. Having conquered much of our two-dimensional social experience, Facebook now says it wants to be the place to go, to socialize, to work, to be, in 3D. In the coming years, I expect people will transition from seeing us primarily as a social media company uh, to seeing us as a metaverse company. So when you leave the virtual reality office and head to the virtual bar, you'll still be served Ads are going to continue being an important part of the strategy across the social media parts of what we do, and, and, and it'll probably be a meaningful part of the metaverse, too. I think commerce is going to be... It's all pretty confident-sounding. Bumper results, a seat at the trillion-dollar table, a futuristic vision. But back in the real world, the company has some competition and some allegations of being anti-competition to deal with. Facebook has been a company that has always had two faces... Ludwig Ziegler is our U.S. technology editor. By that I mean it's been a very unpopular company, a very controversial company, and especially politicians don't like it. They criticize it for not doing enough against misinformation. But on the other hand, Facebook has always had a very happy face because it's a very successful company going from strength to strength, earning billions of dollars with advertising. So it's definitely the happy face on show this quarter. I mean, where, where does it make its money? Mainly from the ads, I gather. Almost all Facebook's revenues comes from advertising, 98% to be precise. And it amounts to $8 per user annually. It collects a lot of users, nearly 3 billion worldwide, and uh, collects the data, the behavioral data, what users do online. 
And what many people don't know, it doesn't only collect data within kind of the Facebook universe, and that's Instagram, WhatsApp, as well as Facebook. It also collects data from other parts of the internet, and it does it with all kinds of digital tricks, in particular the Facebook pixel. So it's really a single piece of code which is integrated in lots of websites. So if you click on that, even if this is not a Facebook property, this web page phones home and tells Facebook what you're doing online. And so with all that data, Facebook can then target ads. And I presume with so many more people staying in over the past 18 months or so that Facebook has, has been helped by the pandemic. Yes, definitely. So if you look at the numbers, the time people have spent on average on Facebook has increased by two minutes to 35 minutes a day. And that doesn't sound a lot, but if you multiply that by Facebook's huge audience, it is a lot. The other thing that's happened during the pandemic is that there are a lot more businesses advertising online. So physical stores had to close. So if they wanted to reach the customer, they needed to advertise. And during the pandemic, a lot of people created new firms. And those firms then tend to advertise online rather than rent a store to advertise their wares and services. So that's the happy face of Facebook, but you say it's, it's always had a sad one. In, in what ways are things not so rosy for Facebook? One hurdle, of course, is what Apple has done with its uh, latest version of its mobile operating system on the iPhone. So it basically compelled app makers to ask their users whether they want to be tracked by Facebook or by other companies. And a lot of users say no. I think three quarters of users so far don't opt into tracking and that means that Facebook can collect a lot less data about the users, and that makes its advertising less efficient. The other problem is regulation of all sorts. The American Federal Trade Commission, a kind of a trust-busting agency, is going after Facebook. There's cases pending in Europe. There's new laws being discussed both in Brussels but also in D.C. to rein in Facebook and other online gatekeepers, meaning companies that control access to important markets like for instance, the advertising market. But the most important headwind for Facebook is probably that users, or especially younger users, think it's no longer cool and go elsewhere. I mean, that's been talked about as a danger to Facebook for some years, but doesn't seem to have bitten yet. Is it starting to? Yes, that's always been the danger. It's always happened to some extent. But with the emergence of TikTok and other smaller services recently, that has changed. So TikTok is the first company that's really a danger to Facebook. In the U.S., users spend now more time on TikTok than they spend on Facebook. But advertisers haven't followed yet. Even Snapchat, it's been very successful recently, but its revenues only amount to 3% of Facebook's revenues. But Facebook, of course, has made a number of bets to protect itself against those headwinds. And what kind of bets do you mean? Mainly three bets. One bet, it wants to become a, an e-commerce platform. So it's always had some e-commerce functionality, it has launched what's called shops, uh, so you can create your own shop on uh, Facebook. But it's pushing further in that direction. And the idea is there that not only kind of to make money with that, uh, charge fees on what people sell on, on Facebook's platform, even though it hasn't started doing that, but also to create a world data garden. Because if the data stays within Facebook's realm, it doesn't have to ask its users whether it's allowed to track them. The second bet Facebook has made is in the creator economy. So there's a growing number of people who produce all kinds of things online from newsletters, pictures, music, all that. And they want to make money with that. And so Facebook wants to make it easier for creators to make money on its platform. It has launched its own newsletter a service called Bulletin. It has done all kinds of other things. And Zuckerberg personally has pledged that Facebook will give 
create us $1 billion by the end of next year, though the details are not clear. But Facebook's biggest bet is on the metaverse, kind of a 3D version of the internet. What do you mean by that? I mean, in what way is it a 3D version of the internet? So many already play in, in 3D games. We know what virtual reality is, but the metaverse is that writ large. You will work in the metaverse, you will play in the metaverse, you will communicate or, or socialize in the metaverse. So the 35 minutes spent on Facebook properties these days, Mr. Zuckerberg thinks or hopes that people will spend 35 hours per week in the metaverse and, and hopefully in, in the Facebook metaverse. And I mean, the most visible investment Facebook has made in that it has bought Oculus in 2014. Oculus is the biggest maker of VR goggles, and it has made a number of other investments. And Zuckerberg's dream or hope is that in five years, people will talk about Facebook as if it's the metaverse company, no longer a social media company. So that's where Mr. Zuckerberg sees the real future, the real transformative future of the company then. I mean, do you think that'll work? Do you think that will make it cool again? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a cool vision. Increasingly... And not just with games or entertainment, we're creating the digital replica of the real world. But for Facebook, the metaverse will also be a political problem. I mean, I've talked about the two faces of Facebook. One, the company being very unpopular because of all the misinformation and fake news and all that. And that is based on these 35 minutes users on average spending on Facebook properties. But just imagine if people spend 35 hours a week in kind of the Facebook metaverse, the debate you will have there the two phases will be even more pronounced. The gap will be even wider for Facebook should it succeed with its vision of the metaverse. In the end, it points to kind of what I think is the fundamental dilemma of Facebook. It wants to create community and it wants to create connections between people, make the world a better place, quote unquote. But at the same time, it wants to make money with that. And I think the more it becomes a part of life, or we live in something like Facebook, the more that discrepancy, that tension will come to the fore and has to be solved. Ludwig, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Dresden. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Una persona que pertenece, como muchos de los peruanos, a los sectores oprimidos por tantos siglos. Peru at last swore in its new president, Pedro Castillo, yesterday. Es difícil expresar el altísimo honor que significa para mí en este momento. After a contentious campaign and then a contested outcome, many in the country are just glad to see an end to the election drama. Mr. Castillo is a mestizo or mixed race son of peasant farmers, a school teacher a union leader. But that's about all that Peruvians know about him, beyond his hard-left platform promising nationalization efforts and constitutional change. That agenda will be difficult, not least because of Peru's recent history of roller coaster politics and a habit of impeachment. And party politics isn't Peru's most immediate problem anyway. It's suffering from the world's worst per-head rate of COVID-19 deaths. Whatever Mr. Castillo has planned, 
it won't be easy. Peru has had both Mestizo and outsider presidents before, but nobody quite like Pedro Castillo, who has no previous political experience. Michael Reed is The Economist's senior editor for Latin America. The other thing that stands out about Pedro Castillo is that he ran on a very left-wing platform. He was the candidate for Peru Libre, a party set up by Vladimir Serón, a Cuban-educated Marxist-Leninist doctor, and its platform is essentially close to communism. And to what extent that is Pedro Castillo's program, Peruvians will find out. And what was Mr. Castillo's message for Peru when he was inaugurated? Well, his speech was generally moderate in tone. He promised what he called responsible change on economic policy. He promised to spend a lot more on health care, which Peruvians want, and more on education. There were also some symbolic gestures, populist gestures. He said he would not work from the presidential palace, which is built on the site of the house of Francisco Pizarro, the 16th century Spanish conquistador of Peru. He will set up an office in Lima's convention center. But probably the most important thing in the speech was um, his push to organize a constituent assembly to write a new constitution. Esperamos que pueda ser aprobado y luego sometido a ratificación en referendo popular. This was the device used by uh, leftist populist strongmen such as Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and Evo Morales in Bolivia, who was in attendance at the inauguration, to concentrate power in their hands and try to hang on to it indefinitely. And that is what worries a lot of more moderate Peruvians. Well, with those questions hanging over him about how he will lead, I mean, how to to read the tea leaves here, tell me a bit more about him. One of the remarkable things about him is that Peruvians don't really know all that much about him. He has made few public appearances since the campaign. He tends not to give interviews. He appears to be very mistrustful. His closest aides are members of his large extended family, and comrades from the teachers' union. But he has said one or two things. No somos chavistas. No somos comunistas. No somos one of his rare statements before the inauguration, he came out and said he was not a chavista, a follower of Hugo Chavez, not a communist, uh, not an extremist, and still less a terrorist. Y es falso toda intención de odio que se ha sembrado acá. Another remarkable thing about him is that he has yet to name his cabinet. He is not going to name it uh, in full until tomorrow. Um, I mean, this is unprecedented in Peru. The cabinet is always named before the president takes office. So why is that? Why is he running, running late on that? I think one reason is not wholly his fault, which is that the election was extremely close. I mean, he won by 44,000 votes out of almost 18 million. His opponent, Keiko Fujimori, a conservative, insisted that there was fraud, though she was unable to provide proof of it. But it took the electoral authority a long time, uh, until July the 19th, in fact, to declare him the winner. Now, that said, I mean, he has known for weeks that he almost certainly would be the president. And the fact that he hasn't named a cabinet, I think, suggests two things. First, that he finds decision-making very difficult because of his lack of experience. 
And secondly, that um, there is a big fight between him and some of the more moderate people around him on the one hand and Vladimir Seron, the leader of the party, on the other, and that that is complicating the naming of the cabinet. So even more than usual, I think it's very important who is in this team and what they want to do. Apart from the party politics, though, what, uh, what, what will be in his inbox when, when he does get started with his cabinet? Well, he takes over at a very difficult time. I mean, Peru has been hit very, very hard by the pandemic. It, uh, around 200,000 people are officially reported to have died from COVID-19. The economy was hit hard too. It shrank by 11% last year. The foundations for recovery are, are there and that the interim caretaker president who uh, has been there for the last nine months, uh, Francisco Sagasti, organised vaccination. It's um, behind the Latin American average, but it's catching up. And the other difficulty that Pedro Castillo faces is his own political weakness. In the first round of the election, he only won 15% of the vote, which in previous elections would have been not enough to get into the runoff, but in a fragmented field it was. His eventual victory was extremely narrow. The new Congress has an opposition majority. You can only count on 42 of its 130 members. So uh, it's not going to be easy for him. But given the political tensions that he's sort of entering into here, how, how much cooperation do you think he'll get from his government? I think the big divisive issue is the idea of a constituent assembly and a new constitution, which is viewed with deep suspicion by the private sector and by many moderate Peruvians. And the polls show that only around 30% want a radical change and want a new constitution. Peru has a recent tradition of the Congress impeaching um, presidents. The last Congress, uh, the last two Congresses, tried it four times. They got rid of two presidents. You need a two-thirds majority to do that. The opposition is not far short of that. So if he does push things too far, then uh, he he runs the risk that uh, he might be pushed out. So it would seem that there are quite a lot of, of forces working against him then. I mean, what, what odds do you give him of, of succeeding, of staying in office, of, of solving Peru's problems? I think it's hard to imagine in these circumstances that we will get a, a coherent, highly competent government that commands a national consensus. I mean, that is what Peru needs. I hope I'm wrong, but uh, it looks difficult to imagine that happening at the moment. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Outrageous proposal. Untamed billionaire's innocent bride. Conquering his virgin queen. Oh... I could go on. These are just some of the modern series offered by Mills and Boone, Britain's leading publisher of romantic fiction. There's a running theme in almost all of the novels. The male heroes are tall, handsome, wealthy, and usually white. British romantic fiction is more than slightly lacking in diversity. Catherine Nixie writes about Britain for The Economist. 
You think of the archetypal romantic hero, and he is tall, dark, and handsome. But the problem is, as people are pointing out with increasing vociferousness, that he's rarely all that dark. I mean, Mediterranean is probably about the darkest he gets. And now Mills and Boone want to change that, and they're going to bring more diverse characters to the genre. How to do that then? How to diversify? The way in which they're going to diversify is to change who writes the books. Because one of the things that Mills and Boone has always said is write what you know. They give extensive guidelines to would-be writers. And so they are changing who is writing the books by launching a competition to find writers from what they are calling underrepresented ethnic backgrounds. So they're looking for submissions from writers from Black, Asian, Middle Eastern, Latin American and mixed race backgrounds. And this is just one in a whole series of social changes that Mills and Boone have chronicled indirectly throughout the 20th century and now the 21st. How is this publisher a signal of British culture then? Well, you can trace pretty much anything that's happened in modern Britain in the last hundred years to the pages of Mills and Boone. So you can find things such as feminism in, in some of the early books In the 1980s, they released a tape that advised authors that the heroine need not be a career girl, so nobody had to worry about that. But she might have a job, and it said even quite an unfeminine-sounding one, and the example it gave was doctor. And the other thing is that now sex is common in the books. Um, The word moist pops up a lot. And whereas it used to be that they were completely no sex before marriage... There's this tension here that the, that the publisher is somewhat behind the times on some matters, but as, as it goes with diversifying characters, trying to, to get with the times. Yes. I mean, somewhat behind the times, but trying to get with the times is also pretty much the whole Mills and Boone history. I definitely do think the average reader of Mills and Boone does want the characters to look more like them. Although what's interesting is, is Mills and Boone has always had an enormous market abroad, particularly in Asia, um, One of the authors I spoke to, she was from Haiti, but she grew up reading it and none of the characters looked like her, yet she still loved the books. So given that this transition is happening then, when I next buy my Mills and Boone titles, what kinds of male leads shall I expect to find? Well, when you next buy your Mills and Boone, I don't think you're going to find actually that much difference in the male leads at all. So they may be ethnically more diverse, But there are some things in so many ways in which they are absolutely not going to be more diverse. So you're not going to find a poor hero. They're not going to have a stammer. They're not going to be wearing pyjamas. They're not going to be shorter than the heroine. That that apparently never happens. There's a whole sub-series in one of the Mills and Boone modern section called Marrying a Tycoon. But you don't get a sub-series called Marrying an Electrician. And you don't even get one called Marrying a Journalist. You'll be starving in your garret and, and not getting the ladies So when you get Mills and Boone, you'll get pretty much exactly what you always got with slightly more diversity, but still with very tall, very handsome, very rich men. And at last, at least a little bit dark. Yes, a little bit. (laughs) Catherine, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review, and see you back here tomorrow.
world peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.